What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. Sam is recovering from a red-eye flight, but we'll be recording the next episode soon. In the meantime, we're sharing recordings made during the New England Motor Press Association MIT Technology Conference. It's held annually at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. This year's theme was lighter, stronger, faster. And a panel discussion was introduced by Brian Reamer, who serves as the Associate Director for the New England University Transportation Center at MIT, where he is working to find solutions to the ways drivers will interact with increasingly sophisticated and automated vehicles and the use of advanced driver assistance systems to maximize mobility and safety. The full panel included Dr. Jody Hall, Vice President of the Automotive Market for the Steel Market Development Institute, David Parator, President and CEO of NanoSteel, Richard Roth, Director of the Materials Systems Laboratory at MIT, Kevin Thompson, Manager of Virtual Tool Development for Fiat Chrysler Automobiles, and Charlie Klein, Executive Director, Global CO2 Strategy, Mass, and Aerodynamics for General Motors. This week, we'll present the first two panelists, Dr. Jody Hall and NanoSteel's David Parator. Brian Reamer's introduction is first. Last year, I came before you with some results of a survey that Craig challenged us in, I don't know, was it um, March or, or April to produce on preferences around automated vehicle technologies and active safety technologies. And I want to thank a few people, Hiller and my team especially, for carrying that forward this year. So last year's work was pre presented in an academic piece at the Transportation Research Board. And we made a decision fairly quickly last year after this meeting to where we're going to do it again next year. And I come forward today with some results um, from that survey, really looking at consumer interest in automation, and I'll call it preliminary observations exploring a year's change, because I think as we dive into this data a little more over the next couple months, we'll understand more. Now, I want to refresh everybody's mind for a moment. Auto safety in the U.S. in particular is in a disastrous state. Fatalities on the U.S. roads are at a nine-year high. 
They were up by 6% in 2015, over to, uh, 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 yeah, 2016 over 2015, 14% over 2014. The insurance industry is losing their shirt. Why? Expensive bumpers and more accidents don't miss. Next. The automotive industry is doing an enormous job of pumping active safety technology in the car. It's all automation at the end of the day. But something's not working too well. Some say it's VMT. Well, VMT last year was up 3%. Okay, it's not all VMT. There's more in the picture than this. So vehicle automation is postulated as the pathway to improve safety. We can look and spend more time than I have here today to talk about all the specifications and engineering that goes into thinking about how to define automation, but I'll call a perspective to one piece. Full automation, by the definition, is a vehicle is going to drive under all conditions that a human can. Lots of people from New England here, right? I want to see one of the manufacturers produce a vehicle that works through a New England blizzard. <laughs> no rational engineer is going to step forward to do that. So L5 automation, although we talk about it in the news and a couple organizations saying we're striving to it, well, maybe not by the definitions. So what are we doing? We're producing highly automated systems that are aimed to work in an operational domain that doesn't include a New England blizzard. Maybe the city of San Francisco, maybe Mountain View, maybe a section of Boston down by the water. But when we think about automation for a moment, let's forget about what GM is doing in California, what Google's doing in Mountain View, and everybody else. It's not about self-driving. It's about a process. It's an evolving process. Malcolm Galdwell's book, The Tipping Point, says it best to me. The tipping point in automation in the car has absolutely nothing to do with today. It's the automatic transmission. It's not the first piece of automation. Power steering was a humongous finding. But the automatic transmission relieved the driver of using their hand to shift, their foot to push the clutch, their mind to think about how many RPMs were moving around and when to do it. And what did we do? We picked up our phones to do something else. So as we think about distraction in the world today, the distraction problem is filling the attentional vacuum that we've created. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to have automatic transmissions. I'm just saying you got to take a step back and think about the holistic issue of how automation is changing our experience in the car. So while the manufacturers would love to say, it's Google's fault, it's Verizon's fault, and Verizon and Google will say, well, it's the manufacturer's fault, it's everybody's fault. This industry needs to work together in problems that are actually monumental in nature and human behavior, and that's why having a conference like this at MIT every year is so special. So let's talk about a survey for a minute. Last year, Craig Fitzgerald's idea, not mine, Craig's somewhere in the room here, blame him, there he is. What do we summarize? Well, consumers were overall satisfied with technology in their vehicles. Um, overall interest in automation was relatively low. Lots happened in the last year, though. Otto drove a truck delivering Budweiser. The federal policies, as Paul uh, mentioned I had uh, NHTSA Administrator Mark Rosekind on campus last year. Federal policies, a few accidents, a few product releases, some advertising changes by Daimler, some new products that we'll see later this fall. I was asking, um, I'm, I'm waiting to drive the Super Cruise system. I think the HMI in there is quite innovative. I can't wait to experience that. So there's a lot that's happened in this space. 
So fundamental question, how has consumer interest changed? So I won't go into the sample characteristics, um, relatively consistent, except we did draw upon some help from our friends at Toyota and Lexus, incorporating uh, a consumer panel of theirs into the sample, but the demographics are relatively consistent. The big change is over a year, most respondents own a car that's 2011 or newer, a year ago, 2010 or newer. So we asked people, how do you feel about the technology in your car you drive today? And what do we see? We see some improvement there. About 7% happier with the technology in their car. That's good. Quality's up, lots of good things happening. We asked people about how do they learn to use technology in their car? And uh, trial and error seems to continue to be the dominating factor. It's not how they want to learn about it. Many of you may know we released some work earlier this year when we went out to six different manufacturers, dealers in the Boston area and tried to buy cars with safety technologies, specific ones. There's an academic piece that was put out at the Transportation Research Board's annual meeting in January. I urge you to read it because it is an illustration of the state of disrepair of the automotive delivery system. Out of the work, only Subaru was capable of selling technology across three dealers to a consumer mystery shopping for technology. Volvo is my favorite case study. They have more safety efficacy behind city safety and Volvo products than any other manufacturer out there publicly. Go in and ask three of the local dealers about safety, and they talk negatively about the active safety systems in Volvo vehicles and pushing the passive safety characteristics. And let's not go to being sold a vehicle that does not have what you're looking for. I urge you to read. Why? Because if we're going to automate, we need to bring the consumer along. And the consumer's touch point has a tendency to be, for better or not, the dealer. So as a quick summary, individuals remain pleased with their current vehicle technologies despite divergence preference for learning. As in 2016, trial and error is the problematic perspective. Now why? Trial and error doesn't come with a mental model. You should do it this way. Do you figure it out how to do it this way? Well, that's, by and large, the luck of the draw. What do individuals want? Little manuals, little dealership education, little online. We're all different when we learn. Many of you remember when you're in college classes, some people learn by sitting at lectures, some people learn by reading the books, some people learn by working through problem sets with friends. We're all a little different. But at least print material and structured material comes with a specific model, a mental model of the design team or the marketing team, and how they'd like you to understand that technology. So let's fast forward here. The world's being defined by billions of dollars of investment in automation by the world's largest technology companies, some of the world's largest automotive manufacturers, depending on how you define them these days, apparently. But it is a topic along the media, the press, that is almost in the paper on a daily basis. And I sat on a NEMPA event, this is four years ago when we were talking about this topic as a future topic. Now, if you sit down and read national papers, it's almost a day doesn't go by, it's something new is going on in the automotive automation industry. Technology is great. <laughs> Over a year ago, sampling characteristics are similar enough, we've done a little work there. 
Consumer interest in automated autonomous cars has dropped by 11%. Consumer interest in technologies to support them as a driver, up 19%. That's a problem. That means we are investing very deeply in automation. We're going to automate the driver out. And the consumer's not so comfortable with this idea. All of the great things, all of the media, all the hype that's occurred over the last year. And is the market there? We can think about this building in particular, actually the cousin next door, the old media lab as perhaps one of the best tech wonders in the world. There is more technology sitting on the shelf in this building that has never made it to market than probably any other academic institution in the world. You can build the best widget, but if the policy is not there to support it and the consumer is not there to support it, it ain't going anywhere. So let's look at this a little deeper, and this is why this data is so fun. A year ago, the synopsis was Basically, the 16 to 44-year-olds were comfortable with the auto concept of highly automated technology. Older adults kind of said, well, I'm not willing to put my life there. So what do we see this year? Everybody shifts up, but the younger folks are drawing back the most. So the folks who don't want their driver's license, want this high mobility, are the ones saying, well, maybe I don't want all of this automation, self-driving phenomenon. Now, this is not to say that in the middle of San Francisco, highly autonomous, highly mobility systems aren't going to work. It's saying first impressions of what these systems may be able to do for me and the desire to provide control to a robot having second thoughts about that. First impressions matter a lot. When the tide's moving in one direction and everything's moving there, the consumer's going along with the technology development, that's great. When the technology keeps going and the consumer starts walking backwards, well, we now need to pull the victim up by their shoes and try to figure out how to push them back in line. But we're not going to do that by just continuing to invest in the technology alone. So, Summary, interest in driver assistance systems, increasing. Interest in full automation, decreasing. Driven by the younger cohort. Now, the great thing about surveys is you have a chance to repeat them. A year ago, we asked people the question, how much would like consider paying for a car that completely drives itself? And we asked this, how much would you want to pay? And Hillary can remember getting yelled at, you didn't give me the option, I'm not willing to pay anything. So we can't compare these results to last year. But 48% of the sample said, I would never purchase a car that completely drives itself. Now, many of the manufacturers are sitting out there and saying, we're not building cars that are going to be purchased. We're building highly autonomous mobility systems, Uber-like vehicles, taxis. Others have promised to have highly automated vehicles in the showroom in 2021. 48% <clears throat> of the market's not interested right now. It's four years from now. That's a fast catch-up. Others interviews have no clue how they're going to pay for it because they know that the premium a consumer is willing to pay for the automation is nowhere near the 
cost of the automation itself. Out of a German manufacturer who I won't remain names, they're thinking about sending you a bill every month for how many miles you drive autonomously. Well, that may work in Germany, but I can't imagine someone in the US paying $100,000 for a car only get a bill every month and how much you use a system. Not gonna work. So let's think about this group here who says they're never gonna buy this. Now again, many of them will change. The only question is, is it five years, 10 years, 15, 20, 25, 50 years until they change? What do they say? Hesitations, loss of control, it'll never work perfectly, I don't trust it, it's unsafe for the dominating factors. Lots of other pieces to the puzzle. Trust is king here. And trust is a losing battle right here in this topic area. So let's talk about how people think about this. Fear and technology breakdowns. My phone doesn't even work 100% of the time. I'm not trusting it with my and my children's lives. Distrust of computer software, which is typically driven by time to market, not quality. I don't trust technology to the point of putting my life in its hands. Trust is king. Trust is earned over time. So what's really interesting here is J.D. Powers just did a very similar effort to this, and we drew this much deeper in the demographics and some other, well, other data points that are quite consistent. But at the highest level, what J.D. Powers found in a survey that was released last month was that consumer trust and automation is eroding. And I love Kristen's quote here. In most cases, as a technology concept gets closer to being reality, consumer curiosity and acceptance increases. By and large, here in the auto industry, we are working in the opposite direction. Houston, we have a problem. We're spending billions and the consumer is not coming for the ride. What are contributing factors? It's hard to say what in particular. Clearly there was a fatality in a Tesla last year. Clearly Uber rolled a car in San Antonio, was it? I forget already. But what I think is the dominating factor for me is not the few accidents. I've seen computers that don't work, my phone crashes on a daily basis, it never hooks up to Wi-Fi. Technology in general, although changing our lives, is just not perfect. And the context of taking the most difficult thing I do on a daily basis and handing it over to a robot, that's tough. And we even even define what safety needs to be. Is an autonomous vehicle that is safer than manually controlled vehicles? brings fatalities down to 38,000 a year enough. It's an autonomous vehicle that never hits a curb and crashes into a curb, what we're looking for? How do we set the consumer's benchmarks of what we're looking for? Right now, people look at robots to be far superior. They're thinking about it as a car that never hits the, the uh, sidewalk or the curb. But in reality, huge strides in auto safety would come from a 5, 10, 15% decrease in fatalities year over year. So let's sum this up quickly, So I was told to keep this under 20 minutes. Trust in technology. It's earned over time. It takes a long time to build, sometimes years. It's eroded instantly in the case of failure. How do we develop a system 
where the automotive industry works together with the technology players and all the bits and pieces and policy, where we develop a system to build consumer trust in new age mobility over time. I'm looking over here at GM. You can't do this alone. You need policies help. You need Ford's help. You need Google too. Some of this comes in clear transparency. That means when there is an accident, who do you call to investigate so the consumer is fully appreciative that we're learning from it and ensuring that we don't make the same mistake twice. So if you think about, we crashed an automated vehicle, so what? Let's never make that same mistake twice because by the third time, the consumer's trust in the situation is a disaster. And I love the Windows blue screen of death from, from, from Windows 10 because I was sitting in Google's campus at a meeting when we, we got to view that and everybody stops because we don't see this that much anymore, but a lot of our mental models is save all the time because I just don't trust Word or PowerPoint. So we're sitting here in a, in a room of auto enthusiasts and let's ask for a second, is driving a privilege or a right? Homework's 85% here, who's got the answer? Privilege. privilege. It's treated as a right though. <clears throat> we in the auto industry engineer for rational drivers. We create specifications, we build it around people who are gonna use a technology in a bounding box. In our naturalistic fleet of Tesla drivers, where we have about 100, 150,000 miles of driving, about 450 uh, hours of autopilot driving, I know of 90 conditions where the autopilot system turned off when the vehicle moved over 90 miles an hour on a road in the New England area. Well, Tesla disengages that system at 90 miles an hour because why should you be driving that fast? We have auto enthusiasts in here. How many of you pushed the bounds of a car that you took out for a test drive to some degree? Lots of hands should be going up. So perhaps, never, John's never. So perhaps it's not the technology, perhaps it's the lunatic behind the wheel. Okay? So perhaps we need to be thinking about the fact that humans, or as Dan Ariely from the Media Lab put it best, are predictably irrational. We can no longer build systems that we expect to only be used by rational performing individuals. That means misuse and abuse needs to be brought in to the engineering equation. And that's why I like Super Cruise so much because they did bring gaze tracking system into the design that or at least head tracking system which is a step in the right direction. So we maybe really need to think about the individuals no matter what technology we put in their hands are going to be problematic because they want to drive really fast. And we're seeing lots of cases of that in our study of naturalistic data today. And we're probably one of the few groups in the world outside of the auto industry that is studying copious amounts of production level automotive technology use. And autopilot is a beautiful system and scary at the same time. So many factors are going to influence the speed of deployment of automation safety is going to be an underlying factor but unless we get the technology where we're putting billions of dollars today together with the human factors and societal pieces and a policy infrastructure that paves the way i.e we are in the center here this technology is not going to launch that means the risks and the liabilities will be too high that means the societal questions won't be there that means we can't solve these problems through technology innovation alone we need to look 
to higher factors. How do we get there? We need to encourage this industry to work together in ways that it has never worked together before. I know we need to be competitive in building cars. They all, we would not want a vanilla car. But the fundamental core theoretical problems from trust to path planning to sensing to control are core pieces that nobody can solve alone. I know everybody thinks they can and they have billions, but later on, the money of the companies, well, you know, I dropped five billion in research over the last 10 years in automation, the consumer's not here, hmm. And we're still not gonna be perfect because 98% is not good enough here. 100% is, or virtually 100% is needed. So some key conclusions here. Results of this second study, which we aim to publish at some point, are basically summarizing manufacturers are spending billions on self-driving vehicle technologies, but consumer interest appears to be eroding to some extent. Trust, major factors. Younger adults driving the way to this eroding belief in the technology. New innovations perhaps are needed on the softer side of high tech to address consumer concerns if automation is going to succeed in a way I believe the automotive industry needs it. So what do I mean by softer side? I mean perhaps full autonomy shouldn't be our short-term focus, perhaps doing a better drive at the driver assistance and partial automation systems that are dotting the marketplace today. Some of our naturalistic work is showing that basically mode confusion in the vehicle is prolific. You just don't know what all the beeps and bongs are, which means that we need to standardize and figure out how to standardize these beeps and bongs. And the hard part is manufacturer A believes they have the optimal, manufacturer C believes they have a different one. The reality is it doesn't matter what's optimal. When the buzzer rings, we all need to know what that buzzer means. So looking forward, how do we begin to get the public, the government, and the industry moving in advantageous parallel directions to change our mobility framework and enhance consumer safety looking forward. Now, what I hope, we do the same survey again next year and we see these numbers recover. But without some fundamental changes, that's not where my educated gut is. But we'll see. A challenge to Craig, Hillary, and a few other people on my team, let's find out. Um, white paper on this was posted on the Age Lab website this morning. Many of you, I believe, got an early version of these slides on your media sticks. If anybody has any questions, drop me a note. Um, unfortunately, I have a meeting this afternoon that I can't skip. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you, Brian. Uh, very interesting stuff. Uh, it was. Uh, I just have one question. Do you think Tesla made a mistake? when they sort of admitted that their, I don't know the proper term, shadow software, where their software wasn't fully developed yet, and it was sort of in the hands of the drivers to um, make mistakes and let Tesla fix it? It's an interesting one. So I spent a lot of time on the phone with ODI in November. They cornered me in the Detroit airport for some reason, Jeff Quant. And I basically, I can write a 50-page dissertation on why Tesla should be recalling the system. And I can re write a 50-page dissertation on perhaps why not. I think the best thing for the auto industry to do is watch, learn. There is incredible things happening in that vehicle that probably shouldn't be. It is fragile technology. It is incredibly impressive technology. 
but by learning together what lead adopters are doing in $100,000 beautiful electric cars, perhaps we can figure out how not to make mistakes over and over again. It's a beta test population. Yeah. Should it be on US public roads? That's a whole different question. But since it is, the most important thing we can do from academia to policy to industry is learn as much as we can together about how it's working, where it works, and why it doesn't. Thank you, Brian. See, it's great to be the moderator. You get to ask a question. <laughs> Back to the uh, topic again, uh, stronger, lighter, faster. And again, we, we talked about it at lunch about, you know, building lightness into vehicles and part of it has to do with structure. And our next speaker is Dr. Jody Hall. She's a vice president of Automotive Market Steel Market Development Institute. I know I didn't get that right. But um, Dr. Hall is vice president of the automotive market for the Steel Market Development Institute, where she's responsible for leadership of the Automotive Applications Council. Uh, she also coordinates the steel input to the Auto Steel Partnership which has uh, partner companies with uh, FCA, Ford, and General Motors, as well as other steel-related consortia. Prior to joining the Steel Market Development Institute, Jody spent more than 30 years with General Motors. Starting to see a, a connection here somehow. <laughs> um, with responsibilities ranging from research and development to new materials. Uh, Jody holds a Doctorate of Philosophy and a Master of Science in Material Science and Engineering, as well as a Bachelor of Science in Materials and Metallurgy. Metal, I'm not even trying at this point. Um, <laughs> engineering from the University of Michigan. Um, Jody, come on up. Do you want to hold the microphone or have it here or whatever you want? Yeah. And, uh, Thank you, John. You can wander a little bit if you want. Yes, not too much because they're videotaping and plus you need to see slides. So I'm going to try to stay out of everyone's way, but thank you very much. Uh, I'm happy to be here at the NEMPA Technology Conference and I'm going to talk to you about how making steel stronger will make vehicles lighter and how we're doing that faster in terms of working and collaborating very closely with our automakers to show them how to implement new steels into production. So to do this, I thought it would be good to show you uh, what we've done in terms of technology over the last 50 years. When people think of steel, people think of old technology, and that is far from the truth. There's quite a bit of technology, and um, we are even moving faster. So if we take a brief look over the last uh, few decades, you're going to see how we've been innovating through the years. Uh, so I'm going to start off. I don't know how many of you are familiar with um, stress and strain, but we're going to talk about tensile strength and look at how steel is increasing in strength, and that's on the bottom, the x-axis. And then we're also going to talk about elongation, which gives you a relative idea of how formable um, the steel is. And I'm focusing on sheet steel, which is used for body structure and some chassis components. Um, so the higher the elongation, the easier it is to stamp into a part shape. And then on the left-hand side, you're going to see the number of grades of steel grow. And grades of steel are sort of 
similar to flavors of ice cream, but they're different, uh, different types of steel that are out there for different applications. And because there are hundreds of parts on a vehicle, um, different materials, as Charlie pointed out earlier, different materials um, require different properties and performance. So starting off in the 70s, we had seven grades of mild steel, and there were just different flavors um, that are allow the automaker to design a part and get additional shape and draw it deeper. In the 70s, uh, for those of you who remember or maybe read in the history books, there was the oil embargo, and that led to the introduction of uh, corporate average fuel economy, or CAFE. Uh, because of this, uh, we needed to support the auto industry in shedding some weight. And how we did that is we came out with stronger seals, and this group of seals called uh, high-strength seals. And these seals, because they're higher in strength, means that you can use less of them to do the same job. So this way, we helped um, the auto industry shed some weight to get better fuel economy. In the 90s, uh, a lot of new safety regulations um, came around. Like the Safety Act was introduced in the 60s, but that was focusing on seat belts and lighting and things like that. By the time we get to the 90s, there's a lot of collision performance requirements that were put into place. And this required even more performance out of um, materials in the structure of the vehicle, and most vehicles. Um, are made out of steel, so the steel industry again collaborated with the auto industry and helped develop higher strength steels that could be applied to help um, get efficient safety into vehicles. So you can see here now where we've gone from seven to about 21 up to 65 and dramatically increased um, the choices that an engineer has to design vehicle parts. Uh, and then in the 2000s, uh, we continued to innovate and to fill in some of the gap areas, uh, again, to help the designer design the most efficient part. You can also see the introduction of aluminum alloys, which uh, at this time was mostly used for hoods for the vehicle. There's a lot of mass in the front of the vehicle, and, and um, that was a good way to take out some extra mass. But also, hoods aren't very uh, complex in shape, and because aluminum, you can see here, is lower on the chart, than steel for the same uh, area of strength. Um, but because it, it is lower in elongation, it doesn't form as easily. And because it doesn't form as easily, you can't get a, as dramatic of shape. So it's much more difficult to design other components uh, out of aluminum than steel because of that. In 2010, we continued to innovate and we're uh, adding some ductility to these high strengths because, like I said before, the higher the strength of the material, um, you're giving up some ductility. So if you can have that combination of high strength and high elongation, you can get some really complex geometries. And with complex geometries and good material properties, that combination gives you a very efficient, high-performing part. And then finally, what we're working on today. So we're still continuing to innovate, and we're bringing out a classification called third generation advanced high strength steel. And that, again, is to give more formability and options to the design engineer to make these components. And these are actually focusing in on some grades um, 
that that have to be roll formed or hot formed, formed by alternative processes to get good shape. So uh, we anticipate seeing a lot of these grades uh, entering into the market very soon. And some of these uh, early grades uh, are coming out in vehicles today. So just to kind of focus in a little bit on um, you know where these steels are used and why they were introduced, um, if you look on the left, it shows highlights the front and the rear of the vehicle. This is the area where you need a lot of good energy absorption, and so you're going to use um, some higher strength grades, but also the ones with good energy absorption to keep that crash energy management, keep it away from the passengers. And then on the right hand side, you can see the passenger compartment, and we use very, uh, the highest strength seal grades in these components so that it um, prevents intrusion into the vehicle. It's for anti intrusion so that the passengers don't get hurt. In this next slide, um, I'm going to show you a video, if I can uh, get it started here, there we go. This is um, the IIHS 50th anniversary video, so it's a um, 1959 Bel Air, I know it's a shame they had to do this, <laughs> and a 2009 Malibu. And it's demonstrating uh, how far we've come in, in terms of safety. And you can see the Bel Air is a much beefier looking vehicle, but when you take a closer look, you certainly would not want to be inside that Bel Air. The Malibu is much safer. And this was, this was 2009, so now it's eight years ago already, and the vehicles continue to get safer for all of us. So I think we can all agree this is a very good thing. So, yes. So, you know, go hug a safety engineer. <laughs> so, um, another thing to consider is the complete cost of ownership. So, typically when people walk into um, a dealership and they're going to buy a new car, they're really excited and they're excited about the design, they're excited about the performance, especially, you know, good safety performance. Depending on what year we're talking about, they may or may not care about fuel economy. Right now, fuel, fuel is cheap, but a few years ago, it wasn't quite so cheap. Uh, so, you know, all in all, people tend to buy uh, the, the priciest vehicle that they can afford. And sometimes, if it's really flashy or something, they can easily be talked into buying something that's a little bit uh, more than what they were planning to spend. But what they typically don't think about when they're buying that vehicle is how much their insurance rates are going to be. And they're certainly not thinking about that fender bender they might get into down the road and how much it's going to cost to repair. So one thing that we're doing um, in the industry is working very closely with groups like ICAR to help with repair procedures. And we work also with the automakers on those repair procedures so that this can be done at a very cost-effective um, price for the consumer. And you know, as we continue to increase the strength of steel and make it safe for you to drive, when you are in uh, an accident and, and a pretty bad one, it can be difficult to extricate the passengers. So we're also working with first responders to come up with new ways uh, of getting passengers out because the jaws of life are just not uh, strong enough for some of these steels. So um, we've worked very closely with that group as well.
So one last topic before I close um, that is very important to the industry, and, and Charlie touched on this as well earlier, and it is um, dr driving emissions and actually life cycle assessment for the vehicle. Right now, uh, corporate average fuel economy uh, and also the EPA is tacked on the amount of emissions coming from a tailpipe, but everything's focused on the tailpipe, which is the centerpiece of this puzzle. Um, and it really, the life cycle of a vehicle is important, not just the driving phase. So if you look at the production phase, um, what's happening today is that uh, because we have to get the best powertrains, the best aerodynamics, and the lightest weight vehicles, um, Automakers are being pushed to invest more in uh, alternate materials, but some of those materials are add more pollution to the environment before the vehicle's ever driven than what they give advantages to during the driving emissions. So as you can see on the left here on the bottom, um, it shows the amount of emissions in making materials. And right now for uh, body structure, and chassis components, you know, the number one competing uh, competitor to steel is aluminum. But you can see here it's about four times um, the amount of emissions just to make a kilogram of aluminum than for steel. And that's all happening, like I said, before a vehicle's ever driven. And in fact, our studies have shown that over the life cycle of the vehicle, some 11 and a half, 12 years later, you never make up for that. Uh, the emissions that you put into the environment in, initially. And in the end, recycling is very important as well, and, and the thing that steel has for it is it's magnetic and very easy to sort, and all the different grades that I showed you of steel can be melted together to produce any of those other grades of steel, which is very unique uh, for that type of material that's not true for the competing materials. So I'd like to summarize by, say, um, by saying that it's not just about MPGs. Uh, it's very important to have performance, which steel has uh, very high performing material in terms of durability and adding to safety and light weighting. It comes at the highest value to the consumer and it's the most sustainable for the environment. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jody. Up next to join us is David Paratori. He is uh, President and Chief Executive Officer of NanoSteel. And I kind of joked about this. Uh, there's a, and they're headquartered in Rhode Island. And I said, there's a steel plant in the middle of Rhode Island somewhere? Well, not quite. Um, their company specializes in the design and commercialization of new formable advanced high-strength steel sheets for vehicle lightweighting and um, new steel uh, powders used in 3D printing. And, you know, if anyone's ever seen a car printed in 3D, it's actually pretty fascinating to watch. And um, so I'd like to invite David up. Thank you. Okay, so it's actually great to follow both Charlie and Jody because they've pretty much answered most of the questions that you could possibly come up with. So uh, I'm going to take a different tact, and I'm going to deep dig a little deeper into what it's like to be the material designers, the guys who have to come up with these alloys versus the guys who, and, and the men and women have to figure out how to use them. Right. So it's uh, somewhat iterative, but we're going to walk through this process. It starts with this. Nothing's easy. Right? And you've all played whack-a-mole at the carnival, right? And something happens, and then another one pops up, and you hit it, and another one pops up. This is the way it is. Designing materials, figuring out how to design cars, making cars work, it's not easy work. Your jobs are not easy. So it's no different for us. And in fact, sometimes it's by your own doing. 
right? Sometimes you're stupid enough to hit a wall and you don't even realize you're doing it, right? We do the same thing. And sometimes, no matter how good you are, you can't predict what someone else is going to do to you, right? And so the world we live in in material design is like this. The world we live in in automotive design is like this. Sometimes you can control it, sometimes you can't, but you have to do this following. Put your head down and do a good job. Just keep on pushing. And that's what you see in automotive design. You see iterative processes of continually making things better, and it's not easy work. Okay, so that being said, Let's talk about what nanosteel does. Nanosteel designs alloys. That's all we do. We design steel alloys. We're pretty comfortable in saying there aren't a lot of companies in the world that do what we do exclusively. We don't make alloys, we just design them. We're based in Providence. Most of our research is done in Idaho Falls. We focus on two areas. One, almost predominantly, or the large share of what we do, is automotive sheet steels for lightweighting. That's the vast majority of what we do. The other side is only recently, the last two or three years. We focus on developing powders for metal 3D printing. Why? Because as you all know, additive manufacturing or 3D printing is very important, but it's very limited by the materials that are available. And so today I'm gonna to talk about sheet steel, but know that bringing low cost steels to 3D printing is literally gonna change the world. As an ex-manufacturing guy, I used to build jet engines in Connecticut. It, 3D printing is an amazing infrastructure. Let's focus on sheet steel for cars. Very similar to Charlie, what you presented today. Four basic categories if you're gonna look at lightweight, if you're gonna look at trying to improve efficiencies. And I completely agree with both Charlie and Jody. It's way beyond efficiencies. It's, it's driver, it's rider performance, driver performance, automotive performance, such a difference in cars. But there's four categories we can kind of look at. One is you can reduce rolling friction, but cars have to stop. So there's a limit to what you can do in that. You can't put them on ice skates, right? The second is aerodynamics. Things are getting tighter and tighter there in terms of the return for investment dollars in terms of aerodynamics. Drivetrain, that's the big bucket everyone talks about. Diesel engines, 10-speed gearboxes, hybrid vehicles, electric vehicles, that's a lot of the focus. But in the end, if you just make cars lighter, you get a benefit across most of these. Just make them lighter. The problem is you can't make them smaller, right? We can find a way to make them lighter real easy. Just make them smaller, but no one wants a smaller car. Just go out in the parking lot, you can see that. And so, that being said, when you try to figure out how to make them lighter and you look at the materials you have available, there's a lot of questions you have to answer as a designer. Right? It's not just what's the material cost, it's all the other things you may not think about as someone who uses that material. Do I have to change my infrastructure? Right? Do I need new machines to actually stamp the parts? Can I join the material? Charlie talked about that. Advancements in joining technology are incredibly important as new materials come online. Do I have to retrain my workforce? I'd rather not. If I can just have these guys do the same work they did yesterday, life's a lot easier. Availability globally. That's one that a lot of people don't think about, but in the automotive world, most platforms are going global, meaning it's too expensive to design a car for each region. So let's design a basic part of that car, the majority of the car, and use it across the globe. The problem then is I have to have materials that are available across the globe. Most industries, steel being one of them, are very regionally based. A steel you have today in North America may not be available in South Korea. So that's a real challenge for global design. And the last one is even if you get all that right and you can have a beautiful car coming out of the, the, uh, the production facility, you've got to be able to repair it, which is what Jody talked to. 
So all those things come into play when you're looking at figuring out what material am I going to use. And so if you start with a very big picture and say, there's an infinite possibility list of materials that are available to me. And you start there and say, okay, but the first question is, do they have the right performance? Can I make parts out of them, make complex shapes out of them? Can they be joined or welded? Can it handle uh, die punching and making holes? Right? All those questions take that infinite amount of materials and they shrink it down. And then you go to the next step and say, is it easy for me to even use? Or is it too hard for me to use? There are a lot of good materials that are designed that never make it into production. Why? Because they're just not easy. And that's the easy to use side. There's also the easy to make side. If we were designing steels, and we can, we can design wonderful steels, but you could never produce them in the existing equipment. And a steel plant costs two to four billion dollars. No one's gonna change their plants because one new grade of steel came out. The steel industry is an amazing industry. Trillion dollar industry, quietly going about its business every day. No one gives it a second thought. But it's a massive industry and it doesn't change on a dime. And so you start looking at all that, and let's say you come up with an alloy or a material. It doesn't even have to be, by the way, steel. This is really uh, agnostic as to what type of material. As an ex-aerospace guy, I can tell you, nickel, titanium, cobalt chromes, I loved them all, right? Now I happen to be in steel. That being said, they all have to answer the same questions, and ultimately it comes down to the painful one. Even if you get through all those hurdles, is it cheap enough for me to use? It's going to be a long time before you see a Honda Civic made of all aluminum. You just can't afford it. No one's going to pay for it. And so you have to add all that stuff into the mix. So what happens ultimately is there's very few real options to choose from. There's composites, yes. Aluminums, yes. Steels, yes. But when you take them and figure out what the best ones are, the list gets short. Okay. So what's required is innovation. It's fundamental to making progress. But the interesting part is most people think of innovation as that, revolutionary, disruptive innovation. Clayton Christensen, I'm sure you've all heard of him, right? And drastic, significant change. That works in a lot of places, but what works more often is evolutionary innovation. Gradual, iterative, incremental. It's still innovation. It takes a lot of time and effort. But the advantage of that type of innovation is it's easier to adopt. So everything has a trade-off. You can go for the big home run, or you can go for incremental improvements. So here's a good example. Clearly revolutionary. Going from horses to cars changed the world. Evolutionary. Well, one car, the Model T, now you have cars for every different application you want to use. Now, there are designers that will tell you that is not evolutionary. Right? Of course. Everyone's proud of their baby. Right? That being said, it is iterative from where it started. It's not like going from horse to car. So where does nanosteel fit in that? You can tell where I'm leading. Nanosteel had to be evolutionary in its innovation because otherwise it would have been too difficult to adopt. But when we look at innovation, we say there's the product side of it, Right? That's science, the technology, and there's also the business model. It's not just about the product. So let me talk about that. First, let me answer this. Why? Why would you care? This is why. This is what steel use in a car looks like, or metal in general. What it shows is the amount of metal in a car is definitely going down. Has to if a car's going to get lighter. It's that simple. 
The mix of which materials to use changes. And it changes, the bottom three colors are different types of steel that Jody talked about, mild steel, high strength steel. Green is advanced high strength steel. The top two are aluminum, aluminum castings, aluminum sheet. The green is advanced high strength steel. It is forecasted to more than double in the next 10 years. It has to if cars are gonna get lighter. It's 40 billion in a market today, just the green. So it is a massive industry. It needs improvement. It needs options. That's why people are focused on it. What do we do? Innovation. Pretty simple. All we do is make steels that have a microstructure that's nano-sized, hence the name nano-steel. Nano-crystalline microstructure. Right? It looks and tastes and smells just like regular steel. I don't advise eating it, but it does actually taste just like regular steel. Right? That being said, if you looked at it under a microscope, you would see a structure that doesn't look like any other steel. That's what's unique. And it translated into a lot of intellectual property. 350 patents worldwide. We've been doing this for a long time. But the model was just, just as important. We can't sit as a little 27-person company in Providence, Rhode Island, between the steel companies of the world and the auto companies of the world. Why? We're just not big enough. Right? And so the reality is this, is what we feel like every day. Right? The steel companies, are, they feel threatened by us. And to some extent, they should if they don't work with us. So what we do, we design a model that says, it's not painful for you as a steel company to actually work with us. We're going to give you a license royalty free. You're not going to pay one dime to work with us. And our engineers and our material scientists will help you figure out how to make our steel. What's the other side of the problem? OEMs, well, they're not small either. And so they don't even realize they're squishing us. So they go about their life and we're just trying to make it work. The way to make it work there is the other side. That's where the royalty comes in. So our model, our business model is not we're gonna sell steel, it's we just take a royalty, that's not complicated, from the people that are actually using the advantage, the auto OEMs. We have people signed up for this, GM is one of them. GM is one of our largest investors along with Lear Corporation, who you may know. <coughs> the idea here is pretty simple. Give the auto steel makers no reason not to work with you, no reason to challenge intellectual property, no reason not to make your steels, but give the auto OEMs the opportunity to have something that can help them in their product design, and they pay a little more for it. Without question, we're not cheaper than the other steels that are out there. So that's the basic idea. What's the other piece? Global availability getting out of the regional structure of steel. So what we do is license steel companies across the globe, currently in discussions with Europe, already have licensees in North America, currently in discussions, actually trials in Japan, avoided China like the plague, just practically speaking. So, but ultimately we will be in China, we'll be in South Korea. The idea is if you're designing a car and you have a global platform, you can get that same greatest steel everywhere. So where are we in this whole process? This did not start yesterday, right? It was actually funded by the Department of Energy for five or six years before nanosteel was even founded. With the basic principle of nano-structured steels are going to be something different. No one really knows what. That was the idea. And we started in 02. We started with coatings. We licensed that coatings to Lear, I mean to Lincoln Electric. We started focusing on R&D. That's when GM got involved. Right? We had our breakthroughs in terms of full production scale. We designed an alloy. We actually delivered our first steel uh, last year. 
May of last year. And then we delivered our second steel, second version in January of this year. Same alloy, very different property sets. Ultimately, it comes down to a design win. So if you'd wonder where NanoSteel is, is it in a car yet? No, it's not. We're at that phase right now of, of customer qualification, getting people comfortable with using our steel. Produced by our partners, in this case, AK Steel, in production scale and production volume, not out of a lab, and in trials. That's it. My little plug for steel. Stick with steel. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. Thanks for listening to Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth, and we'll be back with a new full episode soon. In the meantime, drop us a line and let us know what you think. Head to wheelbearings.media to sign up for the podcast, drop us a note, or listen to episodes. And let us know how you're enjoying the show, or ask us some questions. You can even make episode or guest suggestions, all from the site. And add us to your favorite podcatcher so you never miss an episode. See you next time. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.